We're in Colossians chapter 2. This is the last sermon on this particular uh, portion of chapter 2. Uh, we're going to take a bigger chunk the next couple of weeks, so don't think, why? We're never going to get out of, it, out of chapter 2. We are moving toward the end. We are getting there. The sermon will be on uh, 2.15, but I'll once again read that larger section for you. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that this was written for our instruction, that we might endure, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures have hope. As the God of encouragement and endurance Grant that we would see Jesus, the one in whom we hope, through the Scriptures this morning, that the Spirit would enable us to trust in Him as He is presented to us in the Scriptures. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. I imagine that most of you have not heard of the name Gustav Alon. There's probably a few of you who might have. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Gustav Alon was, he was a theologian in Europe in the, in the 19th century. And he was disturbed over what he saw going on. He looked back at history and saw that uh, Anselm of Canterbury had troubled the church from his perspective, not from my perspective. He thought that, he, that Anselm had troubled the church by having this doctrine of substitution. He thought this was a, had distracted the church from the true meaning of the atonement. He believed that the meaning of the atonement was that Christ had triumphed, and so he entitled his book, Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Quoting from him, The work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. And so he saw the atonement as primarily, and actually I would say exclusively, a victory of Christ over these things. Now, most of you would probably go, what does Gustav Alon have to do with today? Well, liberal theologians continue to say that that is the model, the proper model for the atonement. And he is often mentioned by the emergent church leaders as their guy, 
as the one with whom they can dispute with Anselm of Canterbury about the nature of the atonement. As we're going to see as we look through this particular, this one verse, and this is really the, almost the fundamental verse of his whole book, that there is an element of the atonement that does discuss the, his triumph over the forces of evil, but that is not the whole deal. For even as we look at the context of what we've already read in Colossians, the drumbeat has repeatedly been removing our sins from us, Jesus dying for our sins so that we might be pardoned. That is the fundamental heartbeat of the atonement. This is also an aspect. This victory is an aspect. But it is not to be said as if that is the main thing or the most important thing. Paul, I think, would have trouble with that. Our big idea this morning is that Christ defeated and disgraced the authorities in his disgrace. Let's start with the notion that we were in bondage to rulers and authorities. In order to understand this one sentence, we kind of have to back up and look more at all of Scripture. Okay, because there's things here that are not clear to us at first glance. We have to go back in time. We have to play detective. And I'm really kind of giving you the cliff notes of the cliff notes in this section. Okay, I'm going to try and be as brief as I possibly can. And, and basically it is really summarizing what's going on in the rest of Scripture. Paul here makes mention of the rulers and authorities. This is the, not the first place in this letter he's mentioned them. Uh, <clears throat> we'll get there a little bit later. But that phrase is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there it speaks of some spiritual entities, and it's a little vague at some points. But the idea that we find in places like Daniel and in the Psalms that we read uh, and in uh, Isaiah 24 that we read this morning is that human rulers are under the authority and the influence of these spiritual Entities. Not sure we can call them angels. Okay? But there's the, there's the idea that what takes place on earth is a result of what takes place in the spiritual world. That there's a connection between the two. And the princes, so to speak, of certain regions exert influence and control over the people within that region. We see that particularly in Daniel, where he talks about how Michael was coming to assist Daniel, but the prince of Persia resisted him. wasn't referring to the physical prince of Persia. He was speaking about the spiritual entity that was the prince of Persia. But Michael overcame Through the influence of the evil one, Satan, who is distinct from these, these rulers and authorities have been corrupted. We find possible references to them in the Old Testament under the term, as well, the sons of God. I'm not sure that's what it's referring to in Genesis chapter 6, but in other places it refers to them. For instance, Deuteronomy 32 Verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. There's two ways you can take that. 
He was setting the borders in response to the number of people within a region. Or he could be speaking of this group of beings, the sons of God, who rule over the earth as mediators, so to speak. In Psalm 82 and Isaiah 24, we see that these are prophecies. They're announcing that God would hold these people, or these beings, accountable for the injustice that they have perpetrated upon the earth. And so we we see that the judgment will take place not just on earth, but also those rulers and authorities will be judged. Particularly when you look at the Isaiah 24 passage, if you were paying attention when Dick was reading it, you'll see a lot of that sounds an awful lot like what we find in the book of Revelation, of how they're tossed into the pit, and then they will be judged. Okay? Similarities are there for a reason. Okay? So it is on that basis that I believe that those powers often oppressed God's people through war, persecution. That it's not just Adolf Hitler, so to speak, you know, for a historical example, who decided one day, hmm, I want to conquer all of Europe and part of Asia too. I'm just having fun. But there's also a spiritual being who incites him to do that very thing. And so all of Europe and parts of Asia were oppressed, whether they were Christians or not, by the spiritual entity that was working through a person like Adolf Hitler. We see this as well in terms of persecution. I mentioned in my prayer, Saeed, this uh, young man who um, is Iranian, who converted to Christianity, who left the country, became a U.S. citizen, but still has family back there. He's a pastor, and on one of his trips back, they arrested him. Why is it that these people are persecuting him? They hate Christ, yes, but they're also incited by rulers. And authorities. There's a spiritual dimension to that. That we as modernists, or people who at least grew up in the modern period, have a hard time accepting at points. We don't want to get all crazy, you know. But these, the Bible teaches this, and we have to embrace this as something the Bible teaches. That we must be careful, that we don't look for Satan behind every bush. These these powers also seduced God's people to sin at times through deception and syncretism. The gods of the, the Canaanites were not just figments of imagination. They were spiritual entities that were corrupt. And they sought to corrupt the Israelites. And often they did through the syncretism. We see in Ephesians 2, the passage that we've mentioned before in the, in the previous weeks, that you... We're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so Paul there, in a parallel passage, talks about how unbelievers, are you know, they walk in a particular way and they follow a particular person, the prince of the power of the air, the evil one the one who has corrupted 
these beings. And so, he leads us, and they lead us, into disobedience to God. And so there are times when, when people's sin is not just their own, but is also the product of incitement by evil beings. Think of these shootings that have kind of plagued our country in the last couple of years. Most of these people, there, there's, we can look at it and still kind of go, hey, you know, there's, there are issues this person had. It's easy for us to merely kind of lump it all into, say, uh, mental illness. But there's also a spiritual component that we, we, we dare not overlook in which they are incited to do hideously evil things at times. And so the powers and authorities that the false teachers thought would bless the Christians of Colossae were actually ones that oppressed God's people. Secondly, now the good news. Not so good news. The good news is that Christ defeated and exposed them publicly. As I think about this sentence here in Colossians 2, the best way to really understand it is as a fulfillment of what's prophesied in Psalm 82 and Isaiah 24. That that which they looked forward to has now happened in Christ. As we look at this sentence, we're going to find that, well, we would find, that there's difficult grammar. There are different ways to, uh, to translate this. We're going to have to wade through some of that. So please, bear with me as we sort of wade. I'll try not to make sure it's not this deep. Okay? I don't want you, anyone drowning in it. <clears throat> First, that phrase, disarmed the rulers and authorities. We've kind of looked at who they are. Let's look at kind of what happened to them, because something sort of monumental happened to them. As we look at that one word, we see that there is a range of meaning that takes place. Disarmed is is part of that range of meaning. Another part of that range of meaning is to strip something off. And in fact, we in in chapter three, verse nine, this same word is used to be to be talking about to strip off the old man and its practices. It's the same word. Okay. And so we have a we have a choice. Is it talking about disarming them, something that our law enforcement official in the back has done, disarming evil people? I imagine he has. So, you know, taking away their weapons so that they cannot harm somebody, that, that, that notion, has, has, uh, have they been disarmed in that particular sense so they, can, they cannot harm anybody or have they been stripped of something? Very different idea. I think it leads toward the second of those two, that they have been stripped of something. We'll get there. Secondly, then the question arises to me, because of the grammar, it says, he, if you, go, if you look at verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. <clears throat> Who's the he? God the Father? God the Son? It's a good question for us to ask. I don't think it's, I hear some whispers there, and I'm not sure the answer is as clear as, as perhaps it, you might think it is. Is, in other words, is it that God has stripped the rulers 
and authorities of power? Or has Christ stripped off the rulers and authorities? And usually what goes with this idea of Christ having done it is the notion that because Christ was human as well as divine is the idea that he was subject to those spiritual entities. And so they try to connect it to Christ being circumcised, you know, having, having put off the flesh. So this idea of, of, of stripping himself of these spiritual entities, kind of an odd translation when you think about it, isn't it? Odd sort of interpretation of this text. <clears throat> I think it's better just to remember that Jesus was not subject to those evil beings. What did Jesus do in his earthly ministry? He cast out demons. He was not subject to the rulers and authorities. He did not have to put them off or strip them off in that particular kind of fashion. That that doesn't seem to make sense of the text. It sort of assumes more that uh, there is almost a battleground metaphor that is at work here. The idea of God stripping the rulers of their power sees the context of the court, which is exactly the context that we find in in the psalm and in Isaiah 24. That God is, they are part of the court, and God is going to judge them in the court. In other words, like many judges today, they have been found to be corrupt, and now they are the ones who are going to stand at the bar of justice. So, what happens here is they are stripped of their robes of office. They are divested of their authority and of their power. Grammatically, I I believe it's best for us to see this as God the Father divesting them of their authority through the work of Christ. The work of Christ is not absent from this. It is essential to what happens here. He does it specifically through this. And and what precisely happened here? But he put them to open shame. This is something that was done publicly. It was not done in secret. They were exposed. They were mocked. They who had dignity now have no dignity. I can not help but think of poor Haman. I say poor sarcastically and tongue-in-cheek. You know, he wanted all the glory as the second in charge in all of uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And that lousy Mordecai kept making life difficult for him. And he wanted to put Mordecai to shame. And he built this really tall post in which he was going to hang Mordecai's dead body so he can sing in triumph over his defeat of this person. And who ended up on the pole but Haman himself? Defeated. Destroyed. Put to open shame. We find this concept, this idea, this practice in in places that we usually don't like to go. Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. They're rather graphic at times. But from 16 it says, I will gather them against you, Israel's lovers. 
from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see your nakedness. So this picture of Israel being stripped naked before its, its foes and enemies. It continues in verse 39. They will strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They will bring up a crowd against you. Similarly, in, uh, in Ezekiel 23, And they shall deal with you in hatred and shall take away all the fruit of your labor and leave you there naked and bare, and the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered. So it's a, it was a public display of their sinfulness. And so that, that's the idea that's here. They're going to be publicly exposed for what they are, corrupt and wicked. But in order for that to happen, Jesus had first to be exposed and to be mocked. We see that, that, that Jesus walked through that path first. Those beings, those entities stirred up the nation of Israel and the, the people of Rome against Jesus, who stripped him naked, beat him, spit on him, laughed at him, and stuck him on the cross. And so it arises partially out of Jesus' own temporary humiliation. However, their humiliation, their exposure is permanent, not temporary. It's based upon the resurrection and the ascension because they didn't win. They thought they had triumphed over Jesus, but they didn't. He rose, and he didn't just walk around. He ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, from which he rules now. He has defeated them. They could not defeat him. And so Paul continues, he triumphed over them. And this builds on this previous statement, and it has the idea of the Roman victory parade. That's a great thing to be be in if you were a Roman general. Not so great thing to be in if you were the general that the Roman general defeated. And what they would do, of course, is they would have, there's no weapons here because you're in Rome, but they would have the general seated, you know, on this, on this chariot at the front of the parade, and then they would have all the prisoners who were set free from this, uh, you know, the people that were defeated. So all the freed people would be behind him, you'd have the soldiers, and then you'd have, last, the defeated foe. Stripped of their arms, often sometimes even stripped of their clothing, in chains, in humiliation, to be brought before before the uh, people who are tossing garbage at them and who knows what else, and hurling insults at how they have been defeated by Rome's general, of course. But because they smell so bad, there's often perfume that is filling the air, incense that is filling the air. And that's the image that Paul has here in Colossians 2 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. So we are among those who have been set free by Christ's triumphant work in the the, the atonement. We're part of the ones who are rejoicing of what has happened. We are part of the aroma of Christ, Paul says. 
And Jesus is the one who leads the parade as the victorious, conquering king. And so, in Christ, we have been set free from their authority because he is greater than they are. Let's move to the so what aspect of this. Because in Christ, we need not fear those defeated powers. Because they have sided with Satan, Paul says that we wrestle with them. Did you, did you know what happened in Ephesians 6? That, that we would stand against the, the wiles or the methods or the, the schemes of the devil. And then he immediately says we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the rulers and authorities. Okay? So they're in cahoots. They're not the same as the devil, but they're in cahoots with the devil. Do you understand? So though they have been defeated, they have not been abolished and eliminated. They have, in a sense, moved from rulers to terrorists. We can live in fear of them. But we must remember what Paul says in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither rulers nor powers or authorities nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rather than live in fear, we can live in faith. We can recognize that Christ has triumphed over them, that though they may plague us, they cannot destroy us. Okay? Now, this we have to remember as we think about this, is that all of us are in the middle of, if you're a Christian anyway, you're in the middle of your sanctification process. None of you has arrived. Wait a minute. Have any of you arrived? Good. (laughs) Not that I don't want you to arrive, but if you think you have, then I'd have some more work for myself to do. Um, And so we're in the middle of our sanctification, and therefore, as a result, we are vulnerable to their schemes. We are vulnerable to their methods, which is why Paul wrote that section of Ephesians 6. Okay? Now, we have to keep in mind, as Sinclair Ferguson has noted, that Satan cannot ultimately destroy a Christian believer, but he is well able to destroy our assurance and our joy, our pleasure in the gospel. So what Ferguson is saying is, is, is even though Satan cannot destroy your status before God, he can destroy your enjoyment of that status. And he has a few ways of doing that. In, his, uh, <clears throat> his, in Thomas Brooks' book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he has numerous ones that are listed. It's a book I would recommend to you if you, well, all of us struggle with this. But he lays out some of those devices of Satan and some of the remedies. One of the devices is obvious to us, or at least ought to be, is that they wrestle us, wrestle with us through temptation. They still continue to encourage us to sin. If I could invite Ken to come up here. I want to illustrate something here. 
I'm going to really stretch your imagination because I want you to pretend I'm the evil one. <laughs> Some of you might think, oh, we already knew that, Steve. Um, but let's, why don't you face them? Okay. Now, most of you can't see me unless you're like way over there, right? What William Still does, says is that essentially the evil one hides within the fabric of the flesh, the <laughs> sinful nature, so that we can't see. Stop trying to see me, man. <laughs> so that we cannot see his work. And actually, it sounds as if things that we're thinking about. And so, for instance, might be something like this. Everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I'm tired of eating worms. What should I do about it? I have a gun. That kind of thing. Okay? That's a gross example. But that's, that's what happens. It's as if we are thinking these things, but he's hiding, so to speak, behind our sinful nature. You can sit down now. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for your time <clears throat> and yourself. <clears throat> he hides there so that we think we are the ones who are thinking these evil thoughts. He does. Most of our most wicked thoughts are probably the result of that. Okay, and it appeals to our sinful nature. Obviously, we're not trying to blame our. I'm not trying to blame our sin upon the evil one. I'm talking. I'm talking about the process of temptation that takes place. And so we have to remember when we have these thoughts, these temptations, that we also have the Holy Spirit, and that we have a new life, the resurrected life that we have these things that enable us to resist that temptation. Not only that, but as Paul says, we have the shield of faith to to extinguish these fiery darts that come at us, lest they find a purchase in our flesh. So we're to make use of these things. We're to put them to death in the power of the Spirit. They also wrestle with us by accusing God, calling Him the author of sin, Trying to get us to blame him for the bad things that happened to us. I could say to myself, boy, you know, a lot of my sin had to do with the family I grew up in. Why did God put me in that family? Do you understand? Now, all of a sudden, I'm not taking ownership of, of my sin. I've, I've blame shifted not just to my parents or my brothers, but to God who put me there. That's what he does. He gets you to think those kinds of thoughts, calling to doubt God's goodness, just as we saw in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? With a smile upon his face. All to doubt God's goodness. And so we have to remember again the cross, the ultimate sign of God's goodness. That God does not want me to sin and has in fact made provision for when I do sin to bring me back. God is good. And the cross declares it for all willing to hear that He is good. Sometimes He wrestles, they wrestle with us in terms of accusation, not against God, but against us. 
bringing up the past sins of our lives. Some of you have told me that you have the similar experience to me, that sometimes you'll wake up in the middle of the night and there are your sins, not physically, but in your head. Being accused by the evil one so that you might forget that you are a justified person. It's, it would be similar to if you had a mortgage. We talked about this last week in terms of you know, God paying off our debt okay, in Christ. Like if you, if you paid off your debt, paid off your mortgage. I remember one of the great days in Florida um, in, of ministry was when we got a check that covered our balloon payment for the mortgage. And there used to be on our website a big picture of me with the check going, yeah. I was so excited, you know. But what if after we paid off the mortgage, someone came, to the, the, the lender came to us and said, you owe more, right? Start harassing us on the phone. You owe us money. Pay it now. We just say, no, no, I got a thing that says paid in full. You have no right and no, no authority to say that to me, that I owe you any money. It's been paid in full. And we, that's what we have to do with the evil one. And the rulers and authorities, paid in full, Jesus, been repented of, stop bothering me, leave me alone. I'm not going to engage you on that, because Christ has paid it already. They can also oppress us, so to speak, lastly, with blackmail. Those sins that you fear someone else will find out. Those sins that you're afraid of being outed on. And I think most of us have some of those things. There's something that we wish no one knew about us. And we're glad that hopefully only three people in the world know, and we're pretty sure we can trust them. Boy, we hope we can trust them. You know, it's similar to, uh, this is not exactly it, but I still struggle with this when one of the officers will call and say, hey, Steve, let's do lunch. Or let's get together. And in my mind, because I had an elder who would do this to me and then yell at me, I'm thinking, oh no, what sin of mine are they, have they discovered that they're, now they're going to berate me on? <laughs> you know? What, isn't that crazy? I'm crazy. Okay? But there's that fear of living a double, you know, and therefore you live a double life. That takes place. And, and so that's part of why Paul says in Ephesians 6 to wear the, bless, the breastplate of righteousness. We, have, we need not fear precisely because our justification rests not upon our goodness or lack thereof, but completely and solely upon that of Jesus. His righteousness. And so while my sin would be embarrassing, it cannot separate me from God in Christ. Which is why Paul in Romans 8 said, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. We need to go back to that 
to continue to preach that, that message of the gospel to ourselves when we feel guilty and we feel afraid that Christ has died, He was raised, He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and even better, He's interceding for us that we would not be overcome by the work of evil. So the false teachers then and today seek to take us captive by doctrine that is not according to Christ. Those teachers saw the rulers and authorities as good beings, or at least necessary for the full enjoyment of the salvation by the the Colossian believers. And Paul declares that they have been, that they were opposed to us, and that God has divested them of their authority over us in Christ. That Christ was victorious over them in his resurrection and ascension. And that now we are assured of ultimate victory over them, even though now we wrestle with them. Okay? If your gospel says that you don't wrestle with them, that means you've, you've gone too far. You believe too much of the future is in the present. If, if you believe that you're never going to win, then you believe too little of the gospel. And you fall into despair. Okay? Ultimate victory is ours through Christ. We overcome by His blood, but now we wrestle with them. So let us not live in fear of them, but by faith in Him who put them to open shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that although Gustav Alain was not right all the way, he was partly right. And we need to remember Christ has conquered. He has triumphed. He is the victor. For often we will experience those moments when we are tempted to believe he is not. When we are being ravaged by temptation, by doubt, by fear and guilt. Help us to remember to run to Him. Not to try and rebuild a, a wall based on our goodness, but to bear the armor that He has given us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.